Okay, so good evening and welcome to Nine Lies About Work. Um, so I have to start by saying I'm completely biased. Okay, I, I love this book. I'm a big fan of Marcus anyway. Um, I have never heard of Ashley Goodall before I read this book. Uh, but Marcus Buckingham is involved in um, Facebook, um, among among an awful lot of other things. Um, so I was first introduced to him when I was doing some contract training within Facebook. And an awful lot of what he said resonated with me then. And this book kind of encapsulates all of the, the sort of myth-busting that he does about the standard things that we think are true and that actually aren't, right? So it's quite... Um, Particularly for somebody who uh, makes a living out of things like leadership development and uh, teaching people how to give feedback and so on. And these are the lies that he is going to expose. It's quite an interesting book. But um, bear with me. I'll talk you through what it is and the reasons why he's claiming that some of these things are lies. And hopefully it will resonate with you as much as it resonated with me. Okay, so the book begins with a paradox and an idea, okay? So the paradox is, why do so many of the ideas and practices that are held as settled truths at work wind up being so deeply frustrating to and unpopular with the very people they're supposed to serve? Okay, so that's the first part of the premise of the book. The second is the idea. And the idea is that the world of work is overflowing with systems and tools and processes and assumptions that are deeply flawed. And an awful lot of us know they're deeply flawed. And they push directly against our ability to express what is unique about us in the work that we do every day. And to explain kind of how they worked this book, you need to know a little bit about the tools. Ashley Goodall is the Senior Vice President of Leadership and Team Intelligence at Cisco Systems. Uh, he previously spent 12 years in Deloitte. So he's, he's, a, he's a corporate guy. Right. He's he's used to being embedded in these enormous big companies, um, doing work on team leadership and leadership development and, and all of this sorts of stuff. Marcus Buckingham describes himself as a data geek. That's who he is. That's who he wants to be. He spent years working in Gallup, doing research on various types of organizations. Everything that he says, both in this book and in other videos that you'll see and in his products and in the, the work that he's currently doing with a company called ADP, um, which is Automatic Data Processing, everything is based in research. He can back up every word that he says. He has, you know, by interviewing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, he genuinely can back up every word that he says. Okay, so that's the context that I want you to have in your heads as I reveal the first lie. And the first lie is that people care about the company that they work for. They don't. People care what team they're on. That's what they care about because that's where the work actually happens. Now, I'm sure most of us at some point in our careers have said the words, people don't leave a company, people leave a boss. Okay? So this is um, that idea essentially on steroids. Okay? So um, in the course of an awful lot of research that Marcus Buckingham has done, he has come up with eight questions. And they are described as four questions about the best of we, and four questions about the best of me. So the best of we questions are, well, they're statements, but you're asked to describe how you feel about the statements. Okay, so in that sense, they're questions. So the first one is, I'm really enthusiastic about the mission of my company. Second one, in my team, I am surrounded by people who share my values. Third one, my teammates have my back. Fourth one, 
I have great confidence in my company's future. And the best of me questions, at work, I clearly understand what is expected of me. I have a chance to use my strengths every day at work. I know I will be recognized for excellent work. And in my work, I am always challenged to grow. And he reckons that you can reliably predict the level of engagement that any person working in any organization will have based on the answers to those eight questions. That it's got nothing to do with romper rooms and ball pits and free coffee. He can predict it based on the answer to these eight questions. With me so far? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the fundamental takeaways in this first lie are, while people might care what company they join, they don't care what company they work for. Because once you get inside of a company, the reasons that you joined matter an awful lot less than whether or not the people around you are irritating or frustrating or annoying or will stand in the back or whether your team leads capacity to explain things is rubbish or where people nitpick, etc., 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 etc. They all start to matter much, much more than the reasons that you joined the company in the first place. And that information is not readily available. When you go to join a company, what you can find out about is the size of the company and their espoused virtues or culture or whatever. What you can't find out is just how awful is the person who runs the team that you're going into. Just how political are the people that you're going to be surrounded by on a daily basis. But those things that are going to decide whether or not you are motivated and enthusiastic or interested in the work that you have to do every day. And that's what he means by the lie. And I agree with him, completely agree with him. So what now? So if you know that, what do you do now? So things a leader should do, and now this can be a, a team leader at frontline level, or it could be leadership at any level within an organization, what they should know are the answers to that quest, those eight questions for every member of your team, and you should know them all of the time. So constant engagement at the level of the best of me and the best of we questions. They should know the truth of how to build a great team. Okay, now, again, this is, quite, this is a, a circular piece because what he's saying is you should continue to read the rest of my book, and that will tell you the answer to that. Um, the final one is interesting. If you're moving company, don't ask about the culture. Don't bother. And don't bother asking for information that they won't give you. Ask how do they build great teams? He said by asking that question, that encapsulated question, that will tell you an awful lot about the actual culture within the team building and team maintenance within the company. We okay with the lie so far? With lie number one? Okay. Lie number two, the best plans win. You know that phase in January that every, every company goes through where people at very senior levels sit in a room and they organize a plan? Might happen in December. And then the next level down, get that plan and they use that plan to develop their plan. And it keeps going all the way down until the plan is so out of date and so obsolete that it has reached the bottom level of the company. That's his point. He says the truth is that the best intelligence wins because the world moves too fast for plans. Now we're all just essentially wasting our time building plans upon plans upon plans upon plans upon plans. <clears throat> Okay. So the premise is, right? <laughs> and I copied this whole paragraph out and it's it's in the, the PowerPoint. 
So I'm going to read it to you. Have you seen the Ocean's Eleven? Mm -hmm. Right? The heist movie. Right. So if Ocean's Eleven had taken place in the real world, then after Clooney put his plan together, picked his perfect team and defined each person's role in the team and press play. So in other words, all of the things that organizational planning involves in December and January in, in every, pretty much every organization, they'd arrive in the vault, open the safe, and it'd be empty because Nevada would have changed its gambling regulations. And Andy Garcia's casino owner would have ditched the cash, replaced it with Bitcoin, and in the hopes of jumping a few points on the fortune list of good companies to work for, turned the vault into a subterranean romper room come fitness center in order to aid his employees' well-being. In the real world, the Ocean's Eleven team would burst into the vault to discover the Half Eleven hot yoga class. Has anybody ever heard the expression, um, we're building the plane while we're flying it? Mm -hmm. That's what this is. Why would you do that? Uh, why, would, why would leaders say that to people? I mean, surely all you're doing is telling them that they're about to fall to their death from 37,000 feet. It makes no sense. And yet people do that all the time, don't they? The suggestion is to stop thinking about planning and start thinking about intelligence, right? So if it's not true that the best plan wins because it takes too long to generate all of these very complex plans, it is true that the best intelligence wins. Do what you can to move information across an organization as fast as possible and do so to empower immediate and responsive action. So the underlying assumption is that people are wise. And that if you can present them with accurate, real-time, reliable data about the real world in front of them, they'll invariably make smart decisions because you hired right in the first place, right? So three key points. Number one, liberate information. Number two, watch to see what's useful. There's no point in drowning your people in data. Watch and see which bits they find useful and interesting and respond to and give them more of those. And trust your people to make sense of the information that you've provided them with. Line number three, the best companies cascade goals. Very closely tied to the, the notion about planning. The truth is that the best companies cascade meaning because people want to know what they all share. And that's the fundamental basis of this. So key takeaways, cascaded goals are tagging along behind the work. Okay? So basically, if your team lead is talking to you every day, and obviously they should be, if she sees you doing something that she no longer wants done, She's going to tell you. She's not going to go into the performance management system and go to your goals and change the goals and then hope that you notice. That's daft. So what she's going to do is tell you to do, to do something different. And then once she's done that, she'll go and she'll fix your goals, hopefully. Either that or... What will happen is what inevitably happens in an awful lot of organizations, including ones that I've been involved in, where you get to the mid-year review and people say, well, I haven't done any of that because I didn't have time. Because that's not what I've been doing. I've been actually doing the work. I know I can see some people nodding that that sounds familiar. And that's the premise of this, that cascaded goals are just lagging behind. The next point is that too much time is spent trying to find the sweet point, okay? So if you want to picture the scene, it's December, you're filling in your goals form and you're trying to find a balance between saying, I achieved everything brilliantly, in which case your team lead thinks you're an arrogant twist, or 
costing yourself money because they have inevitably tied your success of achieving your goals to your bonus. So you can't say you did them all. You can't say you did none of them. So where do you find the balance between getting as much of your bonus as you possibly can and not being perceived as being horrendously arrogant? You're not actually looking at what you did. You're trying to balance being arrogant with being poor. So your goals should define, again, this is a direct quote from the book, your goals should define the dent you want to make in the world. And therefore, your goals should be voluntary. Right? Now, we've all heard about um, that you're supposed to allow the person being um, appraised to lead the appraisal and they're supposed to set their goals voluntarily and all of this kind of thing. In practice, of course, they don't. But the point of this is that if goals done properly are always an expression of what the person finds most meaningful, in other words, what they would choose to do voluntarily, then in order to create alignment in a company, we should do everything we can to ensure that everyone in the company knows what matters most. And that then will create a situation where people will choose to contribute in the most meaningful way for them within which within what the company finds most important, essentially. Make sense? Okay, moving on. Line number four, the best people are well-rounded. That what we should be trying to do is create well-rounded individuals. And it's a lie. The best people, according to the authors, the best people are spiky. Because uniqueness is a feature not a book, right? So the example that he uses, and I haven't, I haven't quoted this one, but the example that he uses is Lionel Messi. Okay, so Lionel Messi is he get he wins the Golden Boot year after year after year. He's an incredible footballer, and if you were to actually look at who he is and what he does and you were to measure him against a competencies list for a footballer, you'd never pick him. He's small, he's slight, and he only plays with his left foot. He's not well-rounded at all. He doesn't fit the map at all. But he's brilliant. Why is he brilliant? He's brilliant because... He picked what he was good at and got brilliant at it and kept doing it until he was brilliant at it and forged a place for himself being brilliant at what he's brilliant at. Okay, so that's, again, that's the premise of, of the truth. So key takeaways. A strength is an activity that makes you feel strong. So an ex a strength is something that floats your boat. It motivates you. It makes you enthusiastic, but it also makes you feel strong. You never avoid doing it. You don't want to procrastinate doing it. It makes you feel strong. In the real world, each high performer is unique and distinct and excels precisely because that person has understood his or her uniqueness and cultivated this intelligently. Growth is not figuring out how to gain an ability where we lack it, but rather figuring out how to increase impact where we already have ability. So in other words, identifying what we're good at, what we enjoy doing, what motivates us, and getting brilliant at it so we can have the mass maximum possible impact in doing it. The competency model is the unmeasurable in pursuit of the irrelevant which I really like as a line. Sorry, but I really like that line. And finally, failure by itself doesn't teach us anything about success. The moment we begin to get better is when something works, not when it doesn't. When we get that flash of, my God, that was great, let me do that again. That's where we find our success. Okay, everybody?
All right. Line number five, people need feedback. Not true. People need attention because we all want to be seen for who we are at our best. Right now, he has some really interesting data about this. Um, some of it I've kind of alluded to within this, and a lot of it there's an awful lot in it. Okay, it's quite um, it's quite dense. But he talks about things like fundamental attribution error, where our explanations of others' negative behaviour we end up with stories about who they are. Like you know, somebody does something, somebody shows up late for a meeting. And they're regularly late for a meeting. Our story about them is that they're lazy and unpunctual and couldn't be bothered to get out of bed. If we're constantly late for the meeting, it's because of forces outside our control. The bus is always late or, you know, that's the day that something has to happen or whatever it is. So we're more forgiving of ourselves. First of all, we're more likely to assume that external circumstances and that everybody will understand that. But as far as other people are concerned, we're very quick to say it's because they're lazy or because they're whatever it is that they are, but it's about that person. So therefore, our feedback out. So if I give Declan feedback about some negative behavior, it will be, I will attribute it to some negative aspect of Declan. However, if I receive feedback in, it will be about us. So it doesn't work either way. It doesn't help. Giving and receiving feedback is a fallacy. Anyway, um, one of the most commonly talked about things about feedback is that millennials need feedback. Okay. But if you if you actually pin that down and you and you unpick it, um, if that was true, if there was a need, then Snapchat Snapchat wouldn't work. You actually can't give feedback on Snapchat. But when Snapchat reached two hundred million users worldwide, Instagram started changing their models so that people would get less feedback. Because it's such a successful model to not give people feedback. People don't want feedback. They want attention. That's what they want. So people need attention. And when it is given in a safe and non-judgmental environment, we will come, we will stay, we will play, and we will work. Because what we want is to be heard. What we want is to be seen. So there's three, four more things on this particular one that I want to take you through. So the first one is if a team leader wanted to create pervasive disengagements, in other words, if you wanted to completely turn your team off, the easiest way to do it is ignore them. Ignore the whole lot of them. Don't give them positive. Don't give them negative. Don't give them the time of day. Just ignore them. And what you will create is a ratio of one to 20, where one is engaged and 20 are not. If you were to, as a team lead, choose to just give negative feedback, lots and lots of negative feedback, correct, correct their mistakes, nitpick on things you think they could be doing better, etc., 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 the good news is that that is 40 times more effective than ignoring people. So what you will create is a two-to-one ratio, Okay. So for every one person engaged, you will have two that are disengaged, right? It's, it's major, right? Actually, it's not. It's two to one. So it's two engaged for every one disengaged. However, for employees that are given mainly positive attention, so attention to what they did best, attention to what's working for them. The ratio is 60 to 1. 60 engaged, 1 disengaged. By just giving people mainly positive attention. And you're not, like, you're not blowing smoke. You're telling them what they're doing well. And you get a 60 to 1 engagement. That's huge. 
The final point on this particular lie, excellence is not the opposite of failure. We can never create excellent performances by only fixing poor ones. Mistake fixing is just a tool to prevent failure, but it will never create excellence. Hey, um, people can reliably rate other people. No, they can't. People can only reliably rate their own experience because that's all we have. When we rate other people across, you know, whether it's business acumen or political acumen or friendliness or whatever it is, what we're actually rating is our reaction to what we think that particular thing means. So in essence, we think that rating tools are windows that allow us to see out into other people, but really they're just mirrors with each of us endlessly bouncing back at ourselves. Because all we're doing is rating ourselves, really. So we have the idiosyncratic rater. It doesn't matter who I'm rating. If I'm rating them all on the same thing, I'm going to rate them all the same way because it's not about them, it's about me. Data insufficiency. We don't know enough about it. And bad data. Bad data, there's a fundamental problem that we think. We think that the more data that we have, that we can create averages and we can, we can work it out in that way. But that's not the way bad data works. Bad data combined with good data simply produces bad data that has good data mixed in with it. That's all. If we correlate it down at the end, we'll still end up with bad data. People can reliably rate their own experience of other people. That's what they can reliably rate. So I can rate you on my experience of how you communicate. I can't rate you on what your communication skills are like. Essentially, there's a lot more to it, but essentially, that's what he's saying. Line number seven, people have potential. I love this one. People, the truth is that people have momentum because we all move through the world differently. Okay? Now, he said some really interesting things about potential and about how it works. Let me take you through some of the key takeaways. So with all of the lies, the lie that people have potential is a product of an organization's desire for control and their impatience with individual differences. I'm sure we've all worked with organizations where you'd be asked at the end of a training course to identify, you know, who are the people that you would think of as being high potential and who have low potential. Team leaders are asked it all the time. Who are their high performers who are there not so high performers the authors reckon that the careless and unreliable labeling of some as high potential and some as low potential is deeply immoral because we know that that's not what potential is that potential is not a one characteristic that can be defined and we also know that people cannot reliably rate each other. So it's deeply immoral to say that some people should be consigned to the low potential bin by people who are not able to reliably rate them anyway. So he talks about something called momentum. And momentum, he defines, or they define, as being mass by velocity, same as everybody else defines it. But mass is defined as people's traits, the things that don't readily change over time, multiplied by velocity, so current and past record of performance, okay? how you're doing across all of the, the important characteristics of, of performance. 
And the key part about defining this as momentum and being that this is the important characteristic is that momentum is controlled by the person doing the moving. So in other words, if I go to my manager and I say, I'd really like to be a helicopter pilot. They're going to potentially look at my traits, okay, all of the, the different things that I cannot readily change about me. And then they're going to look at my current and past record of performance to see whether or not in the old model, it's worth spending money training me to be a helicopter pilot. But what about if they were to actually look at my velocity? So have I done courses? Have I done well at them? Have I showed, have I got skills in certain areas that I'm not getting a chance to use? What could I do? So it's, it's kind of clickbaity to say that people don't have potential. But when you dig into it, he is really talking about the capacity for people to change their own direction and to be in control of their own destiny. And that labeling people as having no destiny or having no direction or having no ability to change themselves, that's what's deeply immoral and he's 100% right. Okay, line number eight, work-life balance matters. No, no, it doesn't. Truth, love in work matters most because that's what work is really for. Okay, now, again, there's an awful lot of data. There's an awful lot of questions. There's an awful lot of research behind this. But essentially, one of the most interesting findings is that if you can, as part of your work, spend 20% of your time doing something that you love, you won't burn out. No matter how difficult the rest of the 80% is, you won't burn out. Right? And he's got, again, I'm looking at the faces going, yeah, I know. But he's got tons of data that proves this. Tons of it. So what is love and work? Love, or specifically the skill of finding love in what you do, rather than simply being told to go and love what you love, find something that you love doing, leads us to directly to a place that is the epitome of pragmatism. So if you can look at the entirety of what you do and find aspects of it that you love, and increase that amount to 20%, then you will be resilient in ways that most people simply aren't. Okay, I was gonna call it a theory, but as I say, he's got tons of data that backs this up. Line number nine, the best one. Leadership is a thing, leadership's not a thing. The point, again, it's a little bit clickbaity, this leadership is a thing. The truth is that we follow spikes, right? Spikes bring us certainty. So what he means by leadership not being a thing is that we can't readily identify all of the characteristics that make somebody a good leader and then map them on to other people and say, if I teach you how to do all of these things, you will be a good leader because that's simply not true. The best leaders have so many different characteristics and so many different bits about them that it, it just doesn't work to say if I can teach you all of these things. Quite apart from anything else, given the amount of money that is spent across the world on leadership development programs, despite the fact that most of us here are making money out of this thing, if they actually worked, there'd be an awful lot more good leaders, wouldn't there? So, leaders are exceptional in the sense that they are not the same as each other. They're not. 
And the best leaders don't try to be. The best leaders, they go back to some of the other points and they get really, really, really good at the things that they're really, really, really good at. A leader is someone who has followers. Now, that's one of those, those things that, that I like to say all the time. But in this sense, what he means is that it's part of that whole pithy thing. If you're leading and you look behind you and there's nobody there, then you're not actually leading. Leadership cannot be measured reliably, but followership can. You can reliably measure who the people are who are following you, who the people are who believe in you, and why they do so. And once you know why people are following you, you can do more of it. And that makes you a better leader. And that's the end of the summary of the book. Nine lies. Some controversial some not, all backed up by an awful lot of data. What do we think? It's the I don't most... know how I feel about all that, Maura. There's a few <laughs> there now that I don't like it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know, you have to pick something that might stir a bit of conversation. Jesus, I felt like I felt like interrupting you a hundred times. I have one question on this. In terms of the research and the studies that they've done, were they typically on people who have a high level of autonomy in terms of their role and decision making because a lot of those earlier things around planning and how you align your work and finding more things that you enjoy would typically be aligned to those of us who've got more autonomy or freedom. Yes, no, no, because one of the one of the interesting findings was that an awful lot of people um, have more autonomy than they think they do. So if you ask people how they're spending their day and who's actually telling them what to do on a daily basis, an awful lot of people are making choices, far more choices than we think they are on an hour by hour basis about what they're actually doing. So getting people to utilize those choices a little bit more intelligently is is part of the gig. It's part of what they're talking about. Yeah. Now, the thing about the... um, the thing about the research studies that they're doing, I mean, we're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that they have interviewed for these studies. Thousands. Um, the organization that Marcus works for, apart from having his own coaching and training company, he works for a company called ADP and he's in charge of their uh, research and intelligence about people and performance. Now, I assumed when I started reading about Marcus, first of all, I assumed that the A stood for American and I was thinking the D would be development and the B would be, you know, people or something. I don't know. I, but I was thinking that. It stands for automatic data processing because he's a data scientist. He's not, you know, he's not leadership development. He's a data scientist. He's a researcher. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people at all levels of a whole load of organizations. With with a a really very, very big um, differential in the amounts of authority as well as autonomy and responsibility that they have. So yeah, none of us unfortunately gets to run away from these conclusions. Yeah, I might have to buy this book just so I can disagree with it in terms of try some light. And um, you know that I, I when I was talking about doing this book to Rob, first of all, one of the things that I said was that there are bits of it that are heavy. Okay? Mm. There are bits of it that are that are a bit of a slog, okay? There are places where there are 70 word sentences in this book. Okay. So um, in places, and it's almost like one of them wrote some of the sections and one of them wrote the others. And I don't really want to point fingers and say who wrote which bits, but some of it is, some of it's heavy going. Um, But genuinely, just for the last chapter, 
it's worth every cent particularly in the current in the current climate an awful lot of the last chapter is structured around um leadership in the context of martin luther king and honestly genuinely it's fabulous it's absolutely fabulous it's worth every cent just for the last chapter can i just I'll just say i was disagreeing with the book at the start of your presentation because i was thinking they're trying to teach us common sense and you can't teach us common sense but what i could by the time i got to the end i realized what was happening what he was saying all the rules are what i would consider common sense in a small organization where i know every employee and i know mm -hmm. everyone's needs and everyone's goals and everyone's strengths and weaknesses but what he's probably trying to do is proceduralize that for a big organization where you cannot know everyone's personal requirements and therefore you have to proceduralize so what, what at the start sounded like very corporate you know uh let's put things into boxes and so on uh by the end i could see that yeah he's he just needs to grow what works for a small organization, he wants to make that work for a big organization. And you have to think differently when you're dealing with that many people. Mm -hmm. and, mm. I, I, actually, I actually disagree with that. I think what he's doing is what he's saying is that these enormous big organizations that are trying to put in huge big control systems and data systems in order so that they can function like small organizations are not actually huge big organizations at all. They're just a very, very, very large number of teams. And you'd be much better off just to manage each team as a team. Yeah. Well, then that, you're back. You're back I mean, to that's this. the fundamental premise of what he's saying from the very start is that people don't work for big companies. People work for a team. Yeah. Uh, but then if you, ha if, you have a, if you have a good team leader in a, who's managing a small team in a big organization, he should have that connection or she should have that connection with their team. I just felt like it was kind of trying to teach people to suck eggs. You know, it was like, you know, be nice to people and understand their goals and understand how they feel and give them positive feedback. That's all. I think that just comes that second nature in a small organization. Maybe is, is he trying to, or the, the, the two is two authors. I'm not sure. Are they trying to uh, like leverage, the, the benefits of a small organization into a big organization. Yeah, I, th I think there's probably, there's probably an element of that. But in context, Ashley is involved with Cisco, which is 170,000 people worldwide. Um, Deloitte is 100,000 people worldwide. Marcus is involved with Google, which is 120,000 people worldwide, and with Facebook, which is hitting upwards of 20,000 now. So, like, that's the context in which they're writing, and they're, ta they're taking all of these myths of, as you say, the very big corporate America, and saying, you know, you need to, you need to not do this, that these are fundamental truths that you believe, but they're actually wrong. And more, are there like successful case studies in the book of them like partnering or consulting with people to actually put in this change in bigger organizations? I'm sorry, I just can't let this one go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not the premise that they're coming from. But the, the premise that they're coming from is we've gone into large organizations. We've spoken to thousands and thousands of people. We've collated this amount of data. These are our conclusions. Do okay, that you will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's where they're coming at. Um, like you noticed when I was doing the the summary, that they do give advice for what now. So if you're a leader and you're being told this, and now that foundation has been swept out from underneath you, what do you do now? And they give you some suggestions as to what you do now. But they're basically coming at it from we've all this data. Here are our conclusions. Have ours. Okay. It's interesting. So this is uh, one of his other books. Yeah. First, break all the rules. And yeah. uh, I, he's a man who found a team. Yeah, but but he's like it's interesting that you know he's he's going against the grain here as well um, yeah. as he is in you know he's challenging 
10 common perceptions in that book and and this one is all about the world's greatest managers do things differently 80,000 managers 400 companies i've only read a bit of it years ago i must re re reread it but um it's just interesting that seems to be his his way doesn't it if it's if it's yeah. doing it yeah. that way as well um yeah when they talked about intelligence um uh, i i think yeah. i wrote the most notes i wrote so far tonight uh so that's probably a, a good and a bad thing for me um the best intelligence wins did they kind of talk about what types of intelligence iq eq other types oh no 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 they mean information Oh, okay. I thought you meant okay. So it's real time information. Um, essentially, what they're saying is that if you can populate across your organization what's going on in the marketplace, what's going on in the future research, what other people are doing, what your competitors are doing, what etc. 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 If you can get as much information as possible disseminated as quickly as possible in a real in a very real world kind of way out to as many people as possible within your organization um you can then allow each team and each person within each team to make real-time decisions okay so for example if like i um i did some work with a, a pharmaceutical company who have a virtual supply chain based in dublin okay and they have they have plans and they have goals that are cascaded down from a very large company in the US and they're cascaded down and by the time they get to individual team leaders in Dublin trying to use those goals and plans to define what their people should be doing it's February and the plan plan doesn't make any sense because somebody else has discovered a new product or because the FDA has said, no, you can't go that direction anymore, you have to go that direction, or because COVID hit and now everybody's interested in doing something else, or because, or because, or because, or because. Whereas if you can put an awful lot of real-time information out to people, then you can say, for example, you can tell your quality team on a Monday morning, we have a problem in this product with this type of packaging. It doesn't work. It allows a particular type of bacteria through. We just found it today. Give me some suggestions as to how we're going to identify this. Give me some suggestions as to how we're going to fix it. But he's describing... Um, agility, not yeah. just in a project management sense, yeah. but in an Eng English sense. He, yeah. He's promoting agility. He is, but he's promoting agility. Agility is agility in small organizations, in small companies. Agility is relatively straightforward. Agility with 170,000 people it isn't, and it's not being done well. It's being, in fact, done incredibly badly. Mm -hmm. And in the pharmaceutical industry, which I picked specifically, it's because it's a highly regulated industry. So part of their thing is, well, you know, we have to have a plan because we have to run it past people because regulatory will get involved and blah, 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 blah. Most people who work in pharma are well used to working within a regulated industry. They understand the industry that they're in. Give them the information. They don't say, well, you can't know that part of the plan because that part of the plan resides up here in the organization and you don't get access to it. You only get access to this part of the plan because that's madness. That's not making use of the people that you have to do the things that you need them to do. Mm -hmm. I can say I'm biased. <laughs> I love this book. Do they do they rank any of the lies, Maura? Um, and again, in your experience of working with companies and knowing the nine lies so well, do you think that there's any more detrimental to an organisation than another? I don't think so because I think they're all so they're so interlinked. 
you know, that you can't really say that um, leadership isn't a thing, that if you don't have leaders, you can't, you can't have followers. You can't say that at the top level any more than you can say it down at the bottom level if you've got people who are giving negative feedback or not engaging or they're having their they're keeping intelligence to themselves or they're doing cascaded plans they're all they're all interlinked okay i'm really interested in one more about the uh idea about maximizing your strengths the, the almost like the lionel messi story like at one level it makes complete sense you know what you're doing well what's unique about you maximize it and then on the other hand, it also has me scratching my head to say, are you being a bit one-dimensional then? Are you not addressing some blind spots or some areas of development? And, and are you just kind of uh, marching on willfully blind and you just have, I suppose, one, one I suppose, unique strength that you're, that you're forging a career on without developing those other areas? Okay. But you're from a sports background, right? Yeah. So is there any point in an excellent, excellent goalkeeper <laughs> learning to defend? Yeah, like I t- take your point there. But I mean, I suppose that the, the idea here is that if somebody's behaviour um, on the pitch and, and, you know, they use the Lionel Messi story and, and the David Beckham stories, is they're constantly striving for the extra bit. So it's actually that they that they will put a bit of work on um, areas that they're falling down on things that are that are limiting their performance. Now, yeah. I completely I, like not to say that ninety percent of your time needs to go on development areas. Absolutely, you sharpen the saw and you maximize your strength, but that that there does need to be a focus on almost counterbalancing your strengths. Yeah, like it's not really count. Sorry, Neve. Um, it's not really count, counterbalancing your strengths. It's, do you remember that thing about having um, utilizing your strengths where they'll have the most impact? Yes. Yeah. Okay? So essentially what that, um, what that implies for me at least is that if you've got, if there's something that you're, that is a strength of yours, you're, you're very, very motivated by it. You've got, capacity to get even better at it identifying ways that you can have more impact doing that or utilizing that strength whatever it might be might also mean getting better at something that you're not quite so good at so that you can have impact with that strength yes yeah that makes sense yeah so you're enabling trends so effectively you're enabling you're enabling your utilization you're enabling yourself to have more impact with that strength if you fix a small little thing over here. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Neve. No, I was just going to say that um that point reminds me of the other book, Joe What you probably already don't know what got you here won't get you there. Where yeah. at some point you do have to start looking at even your strengths and maybe how they could be holding you back in some ways if you're not balancing them out with other things so I'm glad you kind of went on to say he's focusing more on enabling the strength rather than just kind of being one dimensional because again like you'd wonder with a lot of it then cause people to say do I need to change job do I need to change career you know to be able to kind of go to that strength and the whole question of what will my job be you know so like I suppose it'd be great now for the old career coaches I'm not in career coaching but they can all be going to career coaches going, this is my strength and I don't know what job <laughs> I'm going to find to maximize it, you know. But it's really interesting. He does, um, for for Facebook, he does a video called Strong, okay? And it's, um, I, I presume it was done before he wrote this book in terms of the, the chronology of it. Um, but it's used in it's used in a few programs within Facebook, including things like Manage Up and so on. Um, and basically, he uses he uses things like um, Hershey and Blanchard and so on. You know, it's like it's well bounded within the stuff that we'd all find very familiar. But really, what he's saying is that a strength is not necessarily something that you're good at today. It's just the thing 
or the things that you do in your work that you never procrastinate, that you look forward to doing, that make you feel good. Okay? And with that definition of strength, to then get better at those things and find ways to have more impact doing those things. Mm. Okay. The the whatever I think it was the second one of these we did um, when I did the book so good they can't ignore you the premise of that is very much like lie eight and it kind of ties with lie four right so that you can be not not necessarily well-rounded spiky you can be brilliant at one thing and and just keep doing that one thing not only will you get better at but you'll start finding mastery and you'll start almost developing a passion in it because you've become so so good at it um and I would yeah, definitely think number lie eight and four are, are a little bit kind of linked in that way and they yeah. kind of map very much to, to Cal Newport's philosophy in um, being, you know, extremely good at one thing. And yeah, if you think of, you know, we're thinking with our corporate hats on that you have to be, you know, a project manager now, but then be a people manager in a few years. If you're a blacksmith or you have a trade, you know, you're, you're just, focusing on that all the time and getting better and better at it or whatever that skill is as opposed to maybe a competency right so um you know i i think in different lives or different worlds it probably is more relevant than than others you know there's this concept of a ver- versatilist or somebody that's extremely versatile that is well-rounded that needs to be in times of uh yeah in times of crisis or downsizing you you can move role very easily into other parts of the organization you know that that has a value um yeah it's it's interesting one of the examples um that's in the book about this whole spiky thing um is this uh guy who is an anesthetist okay <laughs> and they were they were interviewing him for this. Um, I, I think it was engagement or something. It was something to do with burnout, maybe. Um, and they asked him um, how much did he enjoy interacting with patients and you know doing the the conversations before and after. He says, "Oh, I hate it." Mm. And they said, "Oh, okay." Um, so, you know, do, do you do you enjoy maybe helping people and, and saving people? No, I hate that as well. And they were like, oh, God, okay. Um, but again, you know, they noted that they just, as, as their interviewers, they just wrote it down and moved on and put, said they'd think about it afterwards. And then they came around to what part of his role did he love because they were struck that this guy was he didn't have any burnout he was brilliant at his job he was resilient he was motivated and yet he was saying that he hated all these different aspects of you know what would be considered core work for an anesthetist and they discovered that what he loved was the balance he loved the stress of keeping people alive using drugs. (laughs) That it's the balancing act of putting somebody under sufficiently that they can be cut open while not letting them die. That stress, that's what he loved. Maybe staying away from him on Tinder on me, that's the first thing. (laughs) (laughs) Just stay away from Tinder, Neve. (laughs) But if you think about it, who would you like as your anaesthetist? You know, in that room, in that moment, wouldn't you really, really, really want the person who really, really, really enjoys balancing you so that you stay alive? That that's where his passion is. That's a, that's the anesthetist I want. I'm sorry, but it is. I don't care what he says to me before or after, as long as he keeps me alive. Uh-huh. No. It's it, yeah. Again, it's really interesting. But that's what he means about the pragmatism of finding within your job the thing that you love to do. That it might be only something tiny that you actually just get a real buzz is an unfortunate pun when I've just been talking about 
cutting people open. But you know what I mean? That you just something, something small that is embedded within what you do really gives you a buzz. Like really gives you a buzz. Mm. And the further studies wreck that it only needs to be 20%. It only needs to be 20% of your job that really floats your boat mm. in order for it to be like a, a preventer for all sorts of resilience and burnout problems. Mm. Very cool. It's really interesting. It's I find it really interesting. It's definitely an interesting... Really interesting. The more I look at the lies in them, the more I'm kind of absorbing them and trying to challenge them myself to see if I obviously evidence you know you you know can I have evidence to nearly back up both sides of it. I would imagine in lots of ways, right? So, um, but it's um, the interesting last point I, I'll say is just when you talk about the team bringing it down. You know the studies around tribes and whatever number of people that we all can kind of work closely with when you get over a hundred it starts to break down anyway so i think that you know that that definitely um i would i would think uh is very applicable and as i'm new in an organization i'm trying to look at how i felt before i joined versus how i felt right now and you absolutely do look at things very differently very quickly um not saying you know you just forget about the view of oh that's shiny and new before you join once you're in you just you're absorbed in and you forget about the external and you you really start looking at the internal so you can definitely um uh there's obviously evidence so it makes a lot of sense yeah well that's why i started with that because i knew (laughs) knew what was going to happen when i started saying what these things were that when you start talking about pretty much any of buckingham's work actually and anything that he's involved in that you have to start from the premise that he's a data scientist, he's a researcher, he's, you know, the things that he says, he hasn't plucked them out of thin air. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data behind them. Yeah. Very good. Any other questions, guys, or are we good to, to kind of wrap up? We've gone over the hour mark, so Mario, not only have you enthralled us with a nine lives, but you, I think you were the first to, to get over the hour mark, so that's a good, uh, a good marker. <laughs> Or bad. <laughs> like, I have one. I have one uh, criticism of uh, putting my physics nerd hat on. Mm-hmm. He talked about momentum yeah. being force and velocity, and velocity being uh, past and present capabilities and past and present path. Uh, so the velocity should be acceleration if you're talking about past and present, and momentum should therefore be force. And maybe that word makes more. Oh, did John go? We missed the last. I missed the last couple of words you said there, John. Maybe that. Say that again. Um, there was a mention of momentum. Yeah, and yeah. If they transferred uh, into the business world. They said it was a uh, um, mass, mass, ver- mass velocity. and velocity, mm. but velocity was described as having a past and a and a future aspect. And velocity with a past and a future aspect is acceleration. <laughs> and mass by acceleration is not momentum, it's force. And it probably makes more sense in a business sense to say force rather than momentum. I think you're going to have to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, follow, follow Marcus on LinkedIn. Do for the leaving. Right. I think, Ma- I think Marcus. I think Marcus needs a couple of physics lessons. That's all. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Um, I, I would say he is, um, as he he says himself, he's a he's a, a transplanted Brit, and in and so is Aaron. Now so is Ashley actually, um, and you can see in places where they've uh, self consciously almost changed the language to suit the American market rather than the British market. Um, so it might just be one of those, or maybe he no more than myself knows nothing about physics. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Very good. Neve, you're, are you still good for two weeks' time? I am indeed, Rob. I can't wait. I'm so excited. And, I uh, told everyone about it. Have you decided on a book? 
Um, yeah, I've been talking a lot about um, Create Space by Derek Draper for the last few weeks on different things. Um, have Have you read it? No. Uh, no, brilliant. It's actually just a lovely um, change of pace, I suppose, talking about creating space. Um, when we're always trying to get more done, so that's uh, going to be the one, I think. So, yeah. Very good. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Decky, you're you're on mute there. You're talking to yourself, I think. Nothing new there, Rob. Too fair, nothing new there. Uh, that's magic. Sounds great. Neve, really looking forward to it. And Mara, thanks so much for for tonight. There's lots of food for thought there. I'd be probably be talking to myself all night, arguing the different lies. Um, but no, again, nice to have that different perspective on things. Mm-hmm. Lots of food for thought there. Yeah. Um, I will. Do you want me to post the Dropbox link to you, Rob, or to Deck into that message that we have on LinkedIn, and then you can populate it out to whoever's interested? Yeah, I, I can. Yeah, if you want to do that, I can add it even onto the Slack team because if anyone wants to, yeah. in on the Slack connection, and and when I post out the the link to the the, the recording. I'll just tell people there's a presentation on it on our Slack community and we can have people go to that if they if they so wish. Yep. Yep, Great. I'll do that. I, I noticed a couple of typos while I was doing it, so I'll fix those and I'll send you the link. Brilliant. Yeah, no, thanks a Brilliant. million, Maura. Thanks, Maura. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Settlin. Bye, Bye, everyone. See you again Bye. in a couple Bye. of weeks. Bye. Bye. Good night.